Today, we take a deep dive into the archives. San Diego Comic-Con 1975. An incredible snapshot of an industry in transition. Climbing towards a better tomorrow. We've got Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Jim Steranko, Jerry Siegel, Will Eisner. We even have Chuck Norris, all in their own words. Straight from 1975 and the El Cortez Hotel. The magic, the wonder, the struggles from the titans of comic books on an all-new episode of Observations. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld, the Rob of the Observations. I have been making comics 38 years, almost. I'm so excited to get, get that fourth decade, get that 40 years going there. But uh, making comics, writing comics, publishing comics, you might, may have known me from some of my more popular works, Deadpool, Cable, uh, X-Force. I've done work on the X-Men title. I helped launch the third largest publisher in the history of comic books, Image Comics. Uh, for the last 30, 30 years, Image Comics has been wedged right there. We even hit number two at one point, and, and, and I talk about it on one of our many different episodes. I've been collecting comics since 1974. That's as as far back as I can place myself in the liquor store pulling those amazing newsprint comic books off the the, the creaky old uh, spinner rack. This podcast was started three years ago. It exists to share and to talk about uh, our mutual love, passion of comic books and, and the way comic books has exploded across the culture becoming these giant mega $200 million budgeted blockbusters that when they work, they generate billions of dollars of of of, of income and, and 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 even more in in regards to passion and interest and 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 shared experiences. Again, watching my own children uh, just connect with the comic book movie experience gave me a different set of eyeballs. And 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 so this podcast exists to walk you through my own journey as I have from from day one. And, and, and some, some revelations that I had from the comic books. And in and, and my very first episode, I, te- I, I tell you how there was a, a, a super team in the Avengers called the Squadron Supreme. And they all were very familiar to my very young eyes. They looked like echoes of the Justice League. They looked like Superman and Batman and Aquaman and, and Hawkman and Green Lantern. And, and my understanding of what's going on here. How does Marvel have a Justice League? And, and, and later Marvel would have a version of the Legion of Superheroes. And, and trust me, DC has their version of Captain America, the invaders. It, 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 it's back, it's forth. But even at a young age, I was like, what is going on here? What are my young eyes beholding? That is the actual first episode of this podcast recorded three years ago that took us on this incredible journey that finds us as of today at 300 episodes. I was not aware of this when I banked the last episode and sent it off, but my producer, Reed, contacted me and said, hey man, congratulations on your 300th episode. He would know he has uh, produced so many of them, and as he's filing them, it came up 300, so it was really uh, just a shock and a revelation to to uh, to, to behold that, that we've made it to, to 300 episodes, three years, and 
and millions and millions of, of, of downloads. And I'm going to tell you something. It was made clear to me a few months back that we are the number one comic book po- podcast uh, across Apple, Spotify, where, where literally 90% of you are listening. And, and I've, I've got these charts. I've got these analytics. And I am just so grateful. You, you all put us in that position. You all put us there. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate once again the the, the regular audience uh, interaction, the enthusiasm with which you guys share this show with others. I just thank you so much, and 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 I promise that I will try and find another three hundred episodes in me as we continue uh, to go on this journey. As far as journeys, we have a great one today. We have a really special one. This ironically came out of the recent Comic-Con 2023. And, and I'm telling you, I, I, just, I just didn't know what a nugget this particular uh, piece of material would provide for us. But it really, there was an overarching theme in this. And, and, and the theme today, as you, as, as you know, if you've already looked at the, at the header and the, and, and the show notes, the description, this is the 1975 San Diego Comic Convention. This is a CD purchased at the uh, the Kirby Collector, the Kirby Estate booth at San Diego Comic Con 2023. Shout out and respect to to Dan Frega, who who is a fellow Extreme Studios alum. He had visited my booth and informed me that they had these CDs at the booth. He had he had literally just purchased his. I immediately on my first break went over with another Extreme Studios alum, Marat Michaels, and we uh, went to the the, the Kirby Collector, uh, the Kirby uh, Estate Foundation, that booth, and I got the last one. On on Saturday morning, I was able to obtain the last uh, CD that they had of the 1975 San Diego Comic Con. It is produced by Dinah Pubs, and I'm just going to read you a little before we get into it. Of, of what it says in the in, in the inside uh, of, of of the uh, of of the CD little little booklet, it says, "Thank you for purchasing the CD. This is all possible from the kindness and generosity of Alan Light. Alan Light was the creator of the comic book Buyer's Guide and Dynapubs. All funds to help preserve the Sheldorf comics and Comic Con archives. This is a reproduction of a 1975." Vinyl record album, the only LP made of the San Diego Comic Con, originally recorded on a reel-to-reel quarter-inch tape machine, digitized and cleaned up. So, thank you, Alan Light. Thank you, Dinah Pubs, for giving this snapshot in history. The thing that occurred to me as I as I watched this was all of the context uh, that, that that was being presented. Uh, well, as I was listening to all of the different interviews, I was putting it in the context of the times, and I'm gonna help kind of connect all those things with you today but i was really blown away by this i sat down i did a first listening where i literally just sit, sat uh in, in my very plush uh comfy beanbag chair and and uh listened to the the feedback and listened to all these different interviews now i'm going to tell you i bought this uh primarily because it has a jack kirby jim steranko panel but it is so much more than that that is the purpose that i was so excited to have this but it there are excerpts from panels from Stan Lee, from Jack Kirby and, and Jim Steranko. There, there is excerpts from a closing 
dinner, kind of a, a closing remarks from Will Eisner in which he speaks directly to Stanley. But the most powerful stuff you're going to hear on here is from Jerry Siegel, uh, part of the Superman creative team, Siegel and Schuster. Joe Schuster is mentioned numerous times. But again, looking at this overarching, uh, really snapshot in time, this archive, I, I, I was just so moved and so entertained, very entertained. Now, I don't have time to track down and get the approvals, the clearances. It's certainly not my right to play something that they're selling for you on my podcast that I'm offering to you for free. Uh, at, at, at some point in time, possibly I will be able to offer those excerpts, but today I'm just going to read uh, from the copious notes that I was taking the second listen. And my pen was moving moving furiously, pausing, going back, trying to get the exact words, the exact expressions. Just to give you a snapshot, 1975 in the comic book industry. 1975 is giant size X-Men, number one. The book that really is a giant turning point in the history of the comic book world. It is, it is a giant turning point. It is the reboot, the revision of a um, really, I would say moribund X-Men franchise. It, it had stalled. It was in reprints. We've covered it many times here. Uh, a lot of different minds came together to make that happen. There was a, uh, an idea that as international markets expanded, they wanted a team that best represented uh, international markets, which is why there is an African in the team, which is why there's a Russian, a German, a Canadian, uh, a Japanese member in this particular uh, issue with Sunfire. Uh, there's an American Indian in, in, in Thunderbird. Again, this there's an Irishman in, in, in Banshee. Now, now Banshee, uh, you know, had existed, but he had existed prior in these other X-Men issues. But as we've covered many times here, Dave Cockrum uh, gives you your Russian, your African, and your, your German in Nightcrawler, Storm, and, and Colossus. Wolverine had just appeared one year prior in the pages of the Hulk. And this team was assembled, assembled to save the, the original X-Men team who were trapped on a living island called Krakoa. Now, as many of you know, Krakoa, only four, four years back, would then become the source of a giant chapter, which, which is about to close. And I, I think we're going to cover, I think I've, I've found a way to kind of give the, the Krakoa era uh, some coverage here, especially now that it is, uh, it looks to be ending. But, but Krakoa, this element of giant size X-Men, all of this is going on in the summer of, of 1975. There's some other stuff that I'm going to weave in but just to give you a snapshot, when you go buy any of the different wall books at your convention, or maybe your, your store has these on the wall, you can think of, this is, this is that summer. This was recorded. They, they make a point of saying that this was recorded January, uh, I'm sorry, July, uh, July 29th to August 1st. So this is the end of the summer. And do I have, I have so many notes. So th- this, this entire, all of these panels and these commentaries and these interviews were recorded from July, I'm sorry, July 29th to August 3rd. It was held in the El Cortez Hotel. This was no, this, this wasn't even at the convention center that I would visit uh, six years later. And uh, they, they, they were still doing this in the hotel, but it is clear uh, that, that they are just having the, the very best time discussing and, and, and celebrating 
comics because because the, the 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 people in this the Stan Lees the Will Eisner's Jack Kirby Jim Stranko these are your A list you know th- these are your top uh, members in the field of comics at the time uh, the top figureheads and they have all come together in San Diego to to talk about this moment in time in 1975 and share with you what was going on across all of the different publishing platforms in comic books. Interestingly enough, the CD chronicling this, this 1975 Comic-Con, San Diego Comic-Con, uh, begins with a giant science fiction author named Ray, Ray Bradbury. And uh, Ray, Ray is best known for his works Fahrenheit 451 and The Martian Chronicles. The Martian Chronicles was uh, adapted into a TV miniseries when I was in junior high. I want to I wanna say that it was on uh, NBC, uh, but, but I, I didn't give it the, the depth uh, of research. But he was a significant uh, science fiction author of the time, and he has the opening, the opening uh, remarks to start this off. And I'm going to tell you, his very first sentence rocked me. It rocked me. It was so exciting. He says, everyone in a very loud and, and, and very commanding voice, everyone who is here tonight, the reason that they are here in the field of comics is that they went in to comic books for romantic reasons. And I stopped. I went, romantic reasons. He said, the reason that they make this work is because of the romance that was created between them and the comic books. And they in turn romanced us, he said. And, and, and that is why we are gathered here together. And it was just, it really struck me. It really struck me. You didn't see a guy saying, hey, we, we've been gathered here because of our mutual greed uh, of comic books and, 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 and the fact that these are going to be exploited in such a way that it's going to line all our pockets. But it, it, and you're like, no one would ever say that, of course. But, but it was just... You got you to understand, and Will Eisner is going to make a statement at the end about uh, what, what he sees necessary and, and, and the changes that he believes are coming. But Ray Bradbury, just right out the gate, these people were romanced by comics. They are here because of their own romance with comics, and they have in turn romanced us. And it speaks to the relationship, and I've talked to you so many times, and I really do, do believe so many of my fellow peers and the people who have uh, traveled these comic book roads, we do it because we love it and there's a passion. And again, I have heard about myself and my peers going back 30 years about how we got into comic books for money, to which again, I'm like, what what money? At, at the time, it's just an outlet. You want to tell stories. You want other people to experience the stories that you want to tell. And Ray Bradbury is here welcoming fans and peers and professionals alike because of our shared romance. And I really, it really stuck with me. It is the first thing you hear after Alan Light, who again produced this, he uh, says, you know, let's begin with Ray Bradbury. Boom, he launches into, you know, everyone who is gathered here, the reason we are here is this romance with comics. So I thought it was a perfect kickoff. He talks about his obvious different achievements. And at the time he's trying to, uh, uh, you know, he's really into uh, producing plays and he's had a play in San Diego and then it's, uh, he's, he's got some other off-Broadway productions that he's doing. But again, he just um, kind of is the keynote speaker, it seems, and, and introduces everybody then to the 1975 Comic Convention. 
uh, he says, uh, he says, in, 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 in really the, the summary that I wrote, what follows after Ray Bradbury is a discussion among tremendous talents in this comics industry of 1975. And it, and it is a gathering of a group of cartoonists. Truly, this is my, my overview that are struggling to get by. They are each struggling to make a living doing comic books in 1975, despite their, you know, tremendous passion. There's, there's a balance with living wages and, and providing from your family. And you're, you're going to hear that. And you're going to hear uh, different, different, uh, different quotes and, and, uh, and statements made by all of these incredible talents that are, that are, that are to that effect throughout this. It really is to me the overarching theme of this 1975 San Diego Comic-Con as they are gathered at the El Cortez. Stan Lee is the first panel that they share. And he is introduced by Marv Wolfman, who literally just says, this is my boss. He has the power to hire and fire me. So I'm just going to introduce him. Boom. And then when Stan comes on stage, he says, don't wander too far, Marv. You're a, a, a wealth of, of ideas and information. And I want to keep you nearby. Stan is very much the Stanley that we have all come to know and love. The interesting thing is he he takes he opens it up immediately by saying, "Look, I, I don't even know why I'm here or why I've been chosen to speak. So let, let's go with some audience questions. Two questions are are uh, are yelled out to him. Why are you? How did you get your position? And tell us about Silver Surfer. And he and he says, "Look, so th- that's what I heard. And let me start by addressing this. He takes us through." Uh, his his time getting into the comic book field, and he mentions that he wanted to be an actor, of an, and he wanted to be on stage and screen. He mentions he takes he took classes with none other than, or, than Orson Welles, but he said, as you know, Orson Welles made a career out of making you know films, and Stan uh, did did not transcend into films. In fact, he was hired as an assistant to to Timely Comics, which was Marvel Comics before Marvel Comics, and he even mentions. We don't really know why it was called Timely at the time, but you know, eventually it became Marvel. He became the assistant, and he talks glowingly of two giants of the comic book field, Joe Simon, Jack Kirby, the co-creators, the masterminds behind Captain America and so many others. He said they were, in essence, his own words, he said they were pretty much the entire staff for the comic books and the cartoon, cartooning division of Timely Comics. He said he worked as their assistant. And in his own words, he said, most of the days, it was Joe uh, taking care of Jack, providing for him, seeing that he got enough paper, sharpened his pencils. These are Stanley's words. These are not mine. This is what is on the, 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 the CD. He said that occasionally throughout the day, then Joe would leave Jack's side, uh, really positioning, even at this point, that Jack Kirby was this relentless workhorse, this relentless producer of work. And he said that Joe would go out uh, into the hallway or into the greater uh, office area and yell at Stan. And then Stan said, I would be asked uh, to run errands. I was truly a gopher. Go for lunch, go for erasers, go for pencils. And that's, Stan said that that's what he was doing. He, he said that uh, for reasons that are their own, for reasons that are their own, Simon and Kirby left. And then uh, his boss looked to him to, uh, to, to, to carry the load going forward and said, that people had noticed that Stan was a decent copywriter and, and asked him to be an editorial across 
more of Timely's magazines. Again, everything I am telling you, I am telling you as Stans stood up and told the audience at, at, at the Comic-Con in 1975. The interesting part is his uh, focus on the fact that in order to qualify as a magazine to the United States government and so that the post office would charge the minimal amount to mail you your, mail you your magazine, each and every issue had to have two typewritten uh, pages or, or, or just um, basically editorial pages, which immediately explains the existence of the bullpen bulletins and then the letters pages. And it was because of those two non-comic book, non-comic strip elements in the Timely and Marvel comics that it qualified as a magazine, which it desperately needed to qualify because as a magazine, they could get the cheaper postal rate. And that was very important to the bottom line. So at least two basic, uh, you know, uh, prose or, or, or just um, editorial style pages in each issue was a must in order to qualify for this very important uh, standard of being a magazine to get the cheaper mailing rate. I thought that was very interesting. That is something that had I heard, if I had heard it before, I had forgotten. It was really interesting to have him lean in on this. He he then talks about the fact that again because he could uh, put words together and, and 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 people thought he was a decent copywriter that this this fell to him. He segues very quickly away from this, and this is where I am so entertained. I am so entertained that in 1975, right after these two things where he talks about him getting into the business. He does not really return to the Silver Surfer. He does not answer that question. Uh, and when he is speaking of Jack, it, it, when he talks about his time with Jack and, and Joe, he says, and I've got to be very careful. I believe Jack Kirby is here somewhere. So I've got to be very careful about what I say. So he is very aware um, because Jack uh, has, has, as you'll hear from his panel, he has just returned to Marvel Comics after being gone for the greater part of, of, of five to six years. I mean, half a decade. Jack put his pencil down, left Marvel Comics, went to DC Comics, created an immediate and, and, and incredible output that was the Fourth World Saga, which was Jimmy Olsen, New Gods, Mr. Miracle, Forever People, car- uh, carried on uh, with, with new titles such as Commandy, Demon, OMAC. I mean, I mean the losers. Uh, J- Jack embraced... And created a, a giant volume. Many, many of these volumes are on my bookshelf. I love the way DC Comics uh, marketed them. They each say Jack Kirby's, you know, New Gods, Jack Kirby's The Demon, Jack Kirby's Commandy. Uh, they really have, have identified this incredible volume of work that he did while he was away due to falling outs that he had with both Marvel and Stan Lee personally. So Stan immediately after doing this introduction, introduction launches into I, I want to inform you of, of the news that many of you may have heard in regards to the Spider-Man film. And he says, I, I want to tell you that, that as, as he launches immediately into pitching you that Spider-Man is going to become even more important as a film. And, and really, this is kind of the door swinging wide open to all that's going to come in, in the in the months and years and decades to follow, which is how important getting, uh, especially to the companies, getting these characters in the mainstream as television and film. And Stan goes on to say that there's there's a number of different interests in Hollywood in getting this script script off the ground. And he says 
unfortunately, I probably do not have time to write the screenplay. I had hoped he, he said to write the screenplay for the upcoming Spider-Man film. He says, uh, he says, but I'm, I, I, I want to tell you. And then he says, this is a scoop. I am providing a scoop for all of you. Uh, there is now talk of changing our creative, creative approach to Spider-Man. And, and there is talk of turning Spider-Man and changing the entire concept, his words, changing the entire concept of the movie to that of a rock opera, a musical. And, you know, the minute I'm listening to this, it clicks. Because it's around this time that there were uh, two giant musicals that y- you saw commercials for every day on television, especially during the summer. As you do now, as I do now for for. For stage productions, for plays, it was, uh, and, and they'd both been made into films. They'd both launched. They'd, they'd, they'd slingshot from stage productions to movies to now back into stage productions. And it was Hair, which was all about the hippie movement. And then there was Jesus Christ Superstar, both of which people are breaking out into song and dancing, you know, groovy new tunes it, it, throughout both productions. And they were met with huge, tremendous success. And really, I sat there and I thought, of course, at the time, they're like, if Jesus Christ is singing songs from the cross or as he is about to be crucified, and, 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 and we have Jesus Christ breaking out into these giant, sprawling musical numbers, then of course, you're going to get talk of Peter Parker breaking out into song. I can see like him proclaiming uh, what a freak he feels like after being bitten. And, and, and how, how does Mary Jane not know he, he loves her? And then Mary Jane, like, why is he so distant? I, I immediately saw all of these. Uh, these these musical numbers for what was hopeful to be a Spider-Man filmed rock opera. So Stan really, he says, and this is a scoop, he even says, and you have to agree to keep it, you know, within within these halls. I can give you the scoop, but only if you promise not to share. So, you know, again, this is prior to the day of all of our digital platforms, all of our social media. So it would literally be a little harder to get that stuff out and travel with it. So, and that's that's how Stan wraps up his panel, he, he, he shared his getting into the business, how he was, went from gopher to the you know, head editor and eventually publisher of Marvel and then launches immediately into, I want to tell you what's going on with the Spider-Man movie and why you're going to see a Spider-Man movie very soon. Now, we all know that it would take a good 26 years plus following this, 27 years, that Stan would walk that red carpet and get that giant big budget movie that he had envisioned. Now, of course, and, and we've covered it here, the CBS uh, Spider-Man television series and the television movies that they did uh, circa the same time they were doing the Incredible Hulk and the Doctor Strange movies, which is like 1977 to 1980 is when all of this is occurring on the CBS network who, who really got into bed with Marvel and tried to make as many live action adaptations as they possibly could. But Stan is focused right here in 1975 on making sure that you know that they're going to give you a movie, that, that that is his priority. He does not talk about another single comic book. He does not promote anything that's going on in the comic book industry it launches right into we've got a movie and and talks are now shifting to creating spider-man as a giant rock opera and again being a kid of the 70s and knowing how big some of those rock operas were it was only only natural that of course there would be talk of of turning spider-man into the same now 
my wife was wandering in and out as I was listening to this, and and she she mentioned, hey, there was a Spider Man musical, you know, not too long ago, or, or you know, a, a, a stage production. I'm like, yep, uh, something about the dark into the dark. What was it? Um, and, and and so it it, it it was funny, you know, just uh, just just kind of putting all these different elements together. But I think the high water mark for much of everything that Marvel was focused on for all these decades was the X-Men movie and then the Spider-Man movie. Spider-Man being such a key figure, the Sam Raimi 2002 uh, Spider-Man Spider-Man film was just a giant achievement. And and again, I remember looking uh, when we were watching like the news coverage of that red carpet event of the premiere of, of, of Sam Raimi's original Spider-Man film. I said, look, look, look how long, you know, Stan has waited to walk, to, to walk that carpet. And again, if you track it, you know, 75 to, to 2002, I mean, again, you, you're looking at 27 years from this moment until Stan would get the fruition of, of, of clearly what is a priority for him in his panel. The announcer comes on the, C, uh, on the CD, uh, Mr. Alan Light, and then tells us that we are now pivoting towards the Captain America panel that stars the creator of Captain America, Jack Kirby, along with very popular Captain America artist, Jim Steranko. As far as Jim Steranko goes, in regards to Jim Steranko, many of you will uh, recognize a Raiders of the Lost Ark, the dedicated Raiders of the Lost Ark episode, uh, maybe a year and a half back. Speaking of how Jim was pursued by George Lucas and Steven Spielberg to do the key art for Raiders of the Lost Ark, those paintings, which I have been assured since then are in the archives, are in Lucasfilm, that George Lucas does in fact own those, those, those amazing paintings. At least that's what I was told by two people very close to uh, George and to Lucasfilm. But he was approached to do the key art, these incredible paintings that you've seen in, in some of the magazines. You can Google them. You can see them online. They're, in, they're just incredibly striking images uh, that pre-exist Harrison Ford getting cast. And I mean, it looks exactly like him. The fedora, the leather jacket, the whip, um, him battling Nazis on trucks, you know, out in the desert. Uh, it, it's just incredible. J- Jim also, if, as you'll find out, turned down doing more of that work uh, after Spielberg takes him and winds him and dines him for dinner, trying to get more out of him. Jim is an incredible, incredible fan favorite in that he did just a very few issues of Captain America and very few issues of S.H.I.E.L.D., Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. But they made him super popular. He, he along with Art Adams, may be one of the quickest ascensions to superstardom, not just kind of stardom, superstardom, super fan favorite status off just a few um, you know, bodies of work for Marvel. And then he wanted more out of this business, out of publishing. He started his own magazine. He dabbled in all different um, uh, aspects of the business, but he he definitely left doing any sort of regular work behind, but he had a tremendous impact. And, and some of my favorite work is, uh, and I think his most popular is the stuff that he did on Captain America. He was even working on S.H.I.E.L.D. He was working from uh, Jack's layouts. They collaborated. He would embellish Jack. So he is sitting alongside Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby needs really no introduction. When, when people, uh, when I announced that we had the 300th episode not too long ago, uh, the, 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 this past weekend, and people were sharing with me their, their favorite episodes. Somebody asked me what my favorite episodes were and really anything involving Jack Kirby. Any time that I can talk about Jack, his incredible impact, and share with you the, the, uh, the accomplishments that he has made across this incredible. I mean, I, I almost believe you could go so far as to say Jack Kirby built 
you know, comic books. He, 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 more than anybody else on his back with all of the production, all of the, 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 the amount of work that he did. And he's going to speak to some of that. They introduce Jack. They introduce Jim Stranko. I really, I, I cannot, you know, talk about Jack Kirby enough. And the only reason I possess this CD is that Dan Frey told me that it's got a Jim Stranko, Jack Kirby panel that is recorded on this. So he introduces himself and he talks about, given that this is, this is a Captain America panel and he is joined by Jim Steranko on this, Jack says, and, I, and I, I wrote down word for word, Captain America was a landmark for me and Joe Simon. We were able to exercise our fantasies. He says, doing Cap, I can take a lot of creative license. And, 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 he, and he shares that he would never be able to fight six or seven men, hold them off. And he, he laughs. It, it, it's something along the line of, you know, I, I could never, you know, do battle and, and hold off six or uh, seven guys. But, but, but Captain America can. And he, he said uh, he provided, what he enjoyed the most was, was providing a ballet of action choreography. And, and I was like, yes, yes, Jack, that's it. The action choreography. The fights in Captain America, and there's some very famous ones, some, some, a couple of nine-panel grids with Jack just leveling the bad guys. Jack's action choreography in Captain America is among the best ever produced in comics and the basis for so much of what followed. People would take those panels, I know I have, break them down, try and see if there was another move inside those moves that Jack was providing in order to further, you know, to, in order to further, uh, uh, elongate some of those fighting scenes, pull something more out of them. His, his action choreography in every single book that he ever did, whether it was the Fantastic Four or Thor, um, the, the, the action choreography is fantastic, but never better, in my opinion, than, than Captain America. So it's interesting to hear that he really touched on that. He then offers to open up to questions. And if you're wondering, my, my, my Cap was a land... <clears throat> let, me, let, me, let me do my Jack Kirby. Cap, Cap was a landmark. For me and Joe Simon. Doing Cap, I was able to take a, a, a lot of creative license. That's, that's in the realm of Jack. Whereas Stan is, <clears throat> I want to tell you of the news we have of the Spider-Man film. And we're going to make it into a rock opera. Okay, there's definitely a different cadence. I know I'm, I'm not terribly good at differentiating them, but, but bear with me here, you know. Uh, maybe in 300 episodes following this, I'll get it right. Jack opens it up to questions. And before he does that, Jim Steranko says, I'd like to say something. And this kicks all sorts of ass. Jim Steranko, no less, says, one of the great things about Jack is that Jack Kirby is a modest man. He's, and, then, and then he says, I just wanted to share that Jack Kirby, and these are Steranko's exact words, is very simply the greatest comic artist of all time, not just now, he says, but the greatest comic artist that will ever live. And he just wants you to know that the, the audience claps, they, 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 they clap with their approval. They are 100% behind this incredible uh, statement by, G, by Jim Stranko, which, which is, it bears rereading. Jack Kirby is very simply the greatest comic book artist, not just now, but the greatest comic book artist that will ever live. 
greatest comic book artist of all time, J- Jim Steranko proclaims. And everyone again uh, applauds. And what they're going to do is they're going to have a drawing uh, exhibition, two giant pads, and they, and they talk about how following this, they're gonna, everyone's going to watch them draw. Pretty much they acknowledge it, that that's, that's really the gist of the panel, but they're doing some of these questions first. The first question Jack gets from the crowd is, is he, gonna, is, is he, is he arriving on Captain America? And he says, yes. As many of you know, I am working right now on my return to Captain America. Marvel wisely, wisely sought out Jack or again, something that I can, can I can tell you, um, you know, till the cows come home. But you really, it is it is one of those things that you had to be there. This country went crazy in 1976, celebrating the patriotic symbol s- symbolism of 1776 to 1976. It was called the bicentennial, the 200 year celebration, and billboards, buildings, uh flags our coins changed they changed what was on the quarter what was on the 50 cent piece they changed everything for the for the bicentennial the treasury absolutely changed your money your dollars your coins they all had a different bicentennial uh image and and denotation on them there was no bigger symbol in the world of comic books for america and patriotism than captain america and wisely, and to this day, I think it is brilliant that, Jack, that, that Marvel, and Marvel has this way of, in the big moments, coming through, really, honestly, and this is one of them, coming through for Jack Kirby, putting Jack back on Captain America. And he had a spectacular run, that entire, you know, bicentennial era. And that has been collected, um, you know, numerous times. And there was even a Captain America's Bicentennial Battles Treasury Edition that was, that was released. And I shared with you that one of the most uh, my most cherished pieces of art and, and just recently acclaimed is a page from that book that was also inked by Mr. Barry Windsor Smith, two of my favorites on one page. But I mean, you have a page by the creator of Captain Freaking America. And so Jack says, as many of you know, I'm going to be doing Captain America during the bicentennial. So he confirms that he's coming back. Again, the audience roars with the, with acclaim and with, with, with applause. He's asked... If he is keeping the Falcon on the book and he says, absolutely, I'm keeping the Falcon on the book. He says, uh, I love their dynamic and Falcon is staying. He, uh, he says they're having a giant bicentennial adventure and Jack promises, he promises, and this is word for word, a gloriously violent finale, which causes everybody in the, in the, in the you got this very quiet man. And, and I promise, I promise everyone. F- I think you're going to really enjoy the glorious, violent finale. Okay. Um, he says, you're going to be waving your flags and you're, and you're going to stand up and cheer. This is Jack Kirby telling you what you're going to do during his bicentennial year on Captain America. And, it, and he ends with saying, you're going, to gr- <laughs> you're going to grab the flag, you're going to wave it, and you're going to stand up and cheer. And I thought, this is so badass. Hearing the, the, the creator of Captain America inform the audience that, that it's just around the corner. Because again, August 1975, we are at the tail end. We only have, you know, really four months and then we're done with this year and launching into 1976. Uh, he, he, uh, somebody asked him his work process. And this is really the, the, the first kind of overarching knock on that door that 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 theme that that runs through this because this is this is by the time you get to jim in in uh 
Jim Stranko and Jack Kirby on this year approaching the end of the first side of the, of the DVD, the first or the first um, the, the first half of this this uh, the San Diego Comic Con 1975 recording. He says, "I can do three pages a day. I, I could do more, but that becomes a little uncomfortable." He says, "But I'm comfortably able at this point to do three pages a day." Then Jack says, "You can get up." And remove yourself from the drawing board. But you never ever really leave it behind. You never leave the work. You can get. I just. Wow. I was like lightning bolt. You can remove yourself from the board. But you never really leave the work. And then he goes on to say. He goes. I can be taking a bath or a shower. Or eating dinner with my family. And I am still working out the story beats. And the problems. And uh, that, 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 that lie ahead in the story. It never truly leaves you. But let's, let's, let's dwell on that three pages a day. That means he is doing, you know, probably a page every, every four hours, every three and a half hours, like at, the, at minimal. And he says he could do more if he continued into the night. But of course, he wanted to relax. He wanted to hang out with his family. As I've mentioned to you many times, I was fortunate to be in his home, in, in the home that he was producing all of this work in the 70s where he relocated. And looking at the table that was really kind of in the family room that was adjacent to the fireplace, but looked out over Jack's beautiful pool and his beautiful view over the entire, you know, just really elevated um, over, over the, the basically like the Ventura area. And uh, man, I just was so blown away, so blown away by that view. and and. Uh, and and the oaks up up where up where Jack lived and 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 seeing that that drawing board and again I'm I'm with Jack he's living he's breathing in 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 1992 1993 when he's showing me all this stuff in his house and his and his artwork and it's just uh again just the power in this this small frame of a man and, and the, the power contained in this form I mean it's almost funny that he because I'm I'm not a tall guy. But, 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 you know, I, I'm on the shorter end of people, but, but Jack really diminutive and it's almost like God's joke on everybody. I'm going to put so much power and creation into, into this potent little package. And, uh, but man, three pages a day. And you know, when I talked to him and asked him again, why did you, um, do so much work? And he said, Rob, I, I, I had to provide for my family. I mean, he had to provide for his family. He was making that money. And I was I was sitting there doing the math, and honestly, Jack Kirby at three pages a day, five days five days a week, and then you got to understand he was doing covers. Covers carried a higher page rate, but Jack Kirby was doing pretty good for a guy in the seventies. But he was also working his ass off to make it. The royalties and and that stuff is gonna is gonna enter the picture with our next subject. But Jack uh, then ends by saying. That he's in discussions for a Silver Surfer book, a book that's, that came out in, I believe, 77, 78. And uh, it's a graphic novel. We've covered it here. It's one of the Firestone uh, publications when they really started making graphic novels and, and, and making these into trade paperbacks. And that all was happening around this time. And he says he needs to get together and discuss this story with Stan. He wants to, he's keeping it close to the vest. He's not telling anybody in that panel what he has plans. He's got to get together. He's got to 
Have Stan listen to what he has to say. That's his words. Then listen to what Stan has to say. And, uh, and, and, and he says he, he's hoping to surprise everybody with his Silver Surfer graphic novel. But, but he really paints it in that he has to get together and discuss this with Stan. And as I said earlier, Stan, when invoking Jack's name, is like, Jack may be around here. I've got to watch what I say. So, so I, the, the, the idea that these two guys um, still have some simmering tension and, and, and look, Jack has been welcomed back. He's not only doing Captain America. He, he's, he's doing 2001 A Space Odyssey. He's doing Black Panther. He's going to do Machine Man. He's going to do Devil Dinosaur. He's going to do The Eternals. Jack is about to take all that productivity, as I said, packed in this, in this um, diminutive form. And he's going to explode back on Marvel and excite all of us. And he's going to be doing regular covers on The Avengers, on The Defenders, on The Fantastic Four, on Ghost Rider, on The Champions. Jack is back in a huge way. But again, you can get up and remove yourself from the drawing board, but you never really leave it behind. Resonated with me. And I think if you're in this business, whether you're writing comics, drawing comics, all of us collectively, we understood exactly how eloquently he, 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 he uh, expressed that. So that panel basically comes to a close. And then to begin the second side, of the CD, uh, Alan King says that Jerry Siegel wasn't able to make it to the show, but he agreed to let Alan himself, the, the man who put together this compilation, visit him and, and, and record an interview. And I'm going to tell you, I wasn't ready for the gut punch. I don't recall Jerry Siegel's uh, voice before, but he's a very sweet, uh, sweet man with a sweet voice who talks extremely. I mean, extremely humble. Jack is, of course, very humble. This man is sweeter and kinder and apologetic and, 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 and a tad nervous. But they say, imagine, Alan Light says, imagine creating the biggest character in the known universe, second only to Mickey Mouse, he, he surmises in 1975. And he introduces Jerry Siegel, co-creator of Superman. Oh, man, it, 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 it's, uh, you know, Jerry, thanks thanks the team for coming out to, to speak with him. And he, uh, he, he does not hold back from the fact that he is tremendously disappointed with how he's been treated. This is 1975 by Warner Brothers. Uh, he, he, is, he is not pleased with, with, the, uh, with the parameters of his dealings with, with, uh, with Superman. He says... He says that uh, he's tremendously, uh, very early out, early on in this interview, Jerry Siegel says, I am tremendously frustrated to not be earning a cent from Superman and reading about these multi-million dollar deals with Warner Brothers. And when he says it, it, there's some pain in there. Tremendously frustrated to not be earning a cent. And and he may have, I think he says, like, as you know, from Superman. And reading about multi-million dollar deals with Warner Brothers. Uh, he, he, he speaks glowingly of Joe Schuster and their time together creating Superman. And uh, he, he, uh, he speaks of his financial hardship. And his wife, he, he says, as you know, you know, we're really struggling. J- Jerry says this. And his wife says, things are hard for us. Joan Siegel is with him. She goes, things are really hard hard for us and and it just breaks your heart when you listen to this the the the, the gentleman who created superman he talks about 
that they had been really working on uh, creating Superman together. He and uh, he and and uh, Joe Schuster since like 1932. He he puts it around about 1932 that the two of them had been coming up with Superman, but they didn't sell it until about 1937, 1938, and then how the sh- how the strip took off, and and eventually, uh, so so they then. Like many, like Simon, like Kirby, all these dynamic duos were were drafted and they were um, sent to the war. Now Joe Schuster, because of his eyesight, did not go. But the Simons, Kirby's, uh, Jerry Siegel, they went to war. They came back. Things had changed. The corporations had exerted more control over their creations. They were able to return to the strip, and he talks about Joe Schuster uh, redrawing. And, and polishing so many of the faces that there was actually a group of people drawing under Joe to get the work done, but that Joe took great pride in redrawing, polishing, embellishing each and every one of the faces. And he said, really, only Joe Schuster could draw Superman's face. He said, Joe's Superman faces are mystical. No one else captures the essence of Superman like Joe Schuster. Uh, he believes that the original vision version he expresses in this interview, that his original version of Superman is... Uh, Absolutely the basis for everything that followed because he's pressed by the interviewers who say, what do you think of the Superman that they portray now? And, 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 and they make two different uh, acknowledgments of what was going on with Superman in that, in that, at that time. They said, you know, they have Superman like making mean faces now and he growls and, and, and he makes mean faces. And then they said and he's almost achieved this invulnerable uh, power level. And, 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 and to quote the interviewer says, you know, uh, he, he's he's almost invulnerable in, in all that he you know is able to interact with and 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 Jerry Siegel says you know it used to be that the that the robots could knock Superman down that he, that he would struggle and he says that he believes that the that the power uh, and and the and and the strength that they had given Superman was sufficient and he doesn't understand why he said he thinks the changes have just been superfluous just to make changes it's just interesting getting his input. But again, when asked about the television show, he says, I can't watch the, the, the show in reruns or, or, the, or the original George Reeves show. He says, I can't watch it because it's too painful. He says, uh, you know, once again, they're not making a cent. And he literally uses the word traumatic several times. Jerry Siegel says, um, it, it gives me trauma to, to interact with Superman. And, and to watch what's going on with him because I think of all that I, I'm not receiving. Again, Joan Siegel weighs in and, and says that they are experiencing extremely difficult times, extremely hard times. Uh, and it is heart-wrenching. The way he, he, he the, the strain in both their voices, the interesting side note, Joan wants you to know that she knew George Reeves who would go on to be in the uh, early black and white uh, Superman television show serials. She wants you to know that she had known George, George Reeves, who would portray Superman before he was cast, and uh, that they were friends, and that she knew that he didn't know that she was the model, and she she continued to say, I posed, I posed for Lois Lane, I was the inspiration for Lois Lane, and then Jerry wants everyone to know that his wife is the model and the inspiration for Lois Lane, so think about that, the guys who created uh, Superman and, and the wife who portrayed Lois Lane, they are really telling you that they're broke and they're struggling and they're, that the words that they use are hardship, uh, trauma, 
and, and frustration, they don't earn assent from Superman at this time. And they are very much expressing this in the summer of, 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 of 1975 in these 1975 San Diego Comic-Con recordings. As of, as of 1975, as, as the time that this is happening with Jerry Siegel and these panels and this recording, we are six years from royalties changing the comic book industry. We are six years from Jim, Jim Shooter and Mike Hobson at, at Marvel Comics instituting royalties uh, for character creation, for percentage of sales, of which Jim said he had to do it because it was so becoming so competitive and he was hearing DC was going to do it. The, the, the up-and-coming independent publishers were offering a greater equity stake. So Marvel gets into the royalty business and changes things for guys like myself. But uh, this is very difficult to hear uh, uh, a family uh, who had created this incredible character. And again, there's a lot that had happened to Siegel and Schuster. Again, they created Superman. They, 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 uh, Siegel had to go to war. Schuster had eye difficulty, was able to stay home. But when they both returned, the, com- the company treated them differently. Their credits got screwed with. Look, bottom line. What happens after, after this is uh, in October of 1975, okay? In October, of, so, so, so shortly after this interview, uh, Jerry Siegel, and I'm not sure if you've ever heard of this, but so he was engaging in the press because they had announced that a giant multi-million dollar, Jerry Siegel in this interview says $20 million, a $20 million film deal has been struck. Um, for the Superman rights, and that, that's his words, but in the press, uh, and you know, it, there's an excellent show about the Godfather on Paramount Plus called The Offer, and at the very end of it, uh, Mario Puzo, Puzo, who had written Godfather, mentions he's being paid a million dollars to write basically a, a, a pitch or a one-page summary that they can use for a Superman film. Warner Brothers was throwing around money in the name of Superman trying to get this what would eventually be the excellent 1978 Christopher Reeve, Gene Hackman, Richard Donner production, you know, bring that to screen. They were throwing all sorts of money around. So imagine being Siegel and Schuster, both in failing health, both really, Neil Adams will tell you here in just a second, impoverished. Jerry Siegel uh, reacted to this publicly and he had even taken to, to writing DC Comics and threatening to dress up in a Superman costume and jump off a building i mean effectively committing suicide in his protest to how they've treated him <laughs> these exchanges were going ignored and then in october 1975 he published jerry siegel himself released a nine-page press release and he he effectively placed a curse on the superman movie and if you haven't heard this you're hearing it now and here's a snippet it has been announced in show business trade papers that a multi-million dollar production based on Superman comic strip is about to be produced. It has been stated that millions of dollars were paid to the owners of Superman national periodical publications for the right to use the famous comic book superhero in the new movie. The script is by Mario Puzo, who wrote Godfather and Earthquake. The film is to have an all-star cast. Jerry Siegel, the originator of Superman, has put a curse on the Superman movie. I hope it super bombs. I hope loyal Superman fans stay away from it in droves. I hope the whole world becoming aware of the stench that surrounds this Superman will avoid the movie like a plague. Why am I putting a curse on a movie based on my own creation of Superman? Because cartoonist Joe Schuster and I, who co-originated Superman together, will not get one cent from the Superman Superman, I'm sorry, from the Superman super movie deal. Neil Adams 
and, and the reason I'm, I just can't share with you the 1975 interview with, with at least telling you that it got resolved somewhat. Neil Adams, the epic Neil Adams, Mount Rushmore Neil Adams, greatest comic book artist of all time, the greatest, now you're saying, but I thought that was Kirby. No, Kirby is the greatest comic book artist. Neil is the greatest illustrator. Like no one drew like Neil, but the, the absolute illustrations. But Jack, nobody has that mind. Those costumes, that staging, the names, the characters, the scope, the grandeur, nobody touches Jack. But as far as a guy who could just wield a pencil and draw anything and draw it in a way that you would just stare at it with awe and wonder, that's Neil. Neil uh, said when he received this curse and he read about it in the press, he said it was a staggering moment. I stood up in my studio and after I read it, I was just quiet. I went and got myself a cup of coffee. I walked out to the front of my studio and I announced to everybody in the studio, guys, anybody in the studio who wants to read this letter can read this letter, but I'm going to see it that this gets fixed and I'm not going to stop until it does. So if any of you here at the studio want to help me, I'll, I appreciate your help. If you don't want to help me, that's fine. There's no obligation, but we are going to take care of this. We are going to get this taken care of, or I'm going to know why. I'm not going to stop until it gets done, he, he, he proclaims. Neil Adams, just so you know, got together with uh, a number of different individuals. Uh, and he formulated this incredible plan. And he got together uh, and took them on a, uh, a press tour. And they literally uh, protested. They protested in each and every possible publication, newspaper, uh, the 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 television shows that would have them on. I'm gonna read. I'm gonna read to you uh, another excerpt that kind of uh, puts this puts this in in uh, in perspective. Neil says, "I've always been an artist, and I've always loved Superman. He is uh, because he is so fun to draw. He's the greatest superhero of all time. He defined what a superhero is. And ever since I left advertising and got into comic books, I had been." Asking to meet Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. These were the guys that created an entire genre. And then I became the president of the Academy of Comic Book Arts. Well, in the mid-1970s, I walked into my office and there's a letter from Jerry Siegel. He has heard that they are making a Superman movie and he puts a hex on it. He curses the movie because he's been ripped off and he wants the world to know his story. I was absolutely devastated. The creators of Superman aren't going to get a creator credit and they are both living in poverty. Well, I am the president of the Academy of Comic Book Arts. I'm going to do something about this. I met with Jerry. I met with Joe. I talked to the International Press Corps. He says, we went to newspapers, TV, and magazines. We pushed for Warners and DC Comics to make this right, that the men who created this entire superhero genre get their byline restored and annual pensions and lifetime health care for the creation of Superman. And uh, we came to a deal, and then the movie came out, and uh, those gentlemen were guests of honor at the premiere. And that is a quote from Neil in, uh, from The Trial of Superman, published in 2014. So you got to know that it works out for Jerry and Joe, but it works out better than the situation they had. If you, on this recording, just the pain in their voices, Superman gives them trauma. Uh, they, they, they don't get one single cent. They're struggling. They're 
They're in hardship. It really paints a dire picture. But he is so grateful and so thankful to Alan Light and the entire team for coming out to visit him and, and, and for doing this interview that will be able to be shared at the, the Comic-Con. But it stopped me cold in my tracks. I sat there and I was like, man. And uh, there's a saying, but for the grace of God, go I. And it really uh, applies to, I think, every single one of us cartoonists, the hardship of, of the Jack Kirby's of the world. And there are three pages a day. And, and the, what he was putting on those three pages, the incredible amount, uh, the, the stunning work that he was generating, the, the hardship of, of Siegel and Schuster, and, and being able to share themselves very honestly, very openly. I mean, to threaten, I'm going to jump off the highest building in my Superman suit. I mean, this is a man in, a, in, a, in tremendous pain. It comes across in this interview. And, uh, you know, it just really put everything in perspective that 1975 comics were a tough business. Ray Bradbury leads this off again, reminding you that he says they're in this for the romance. We have this unhealthy romance. All of us do. I call it the fever, the curse. My kids know it. And I relate to when Jack says you can actually physically leave the board, but you don't leave the work. I can remove myself from the board, but the work truly never leaves me. I relate. I think many artists, musicians, I don't think that's obviously exclusive to cartoonists, but if you are one of those you know, people that, 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 that you live with that, you know what that means. It really resonates with you. It ends, the, the CD ends with uh, Will Eisner basically at, he calls it the Spirit Awards, which is, they're not named the Eisner Awards yet. I, I believe it is some, some form of that. But he, and I quote, I will read what Will Eisner wraps this all up with because he is uh, very deliberate in, in, how, in how he shares these, these final thoughts. Uh, Will, Will Eisner states that as he, as he stands up and, and, and says, he, he basically says that the last 10 years have been really a great time of growth artistically for the comic book medium. But he says, we are facing an emergence of a more sophisticated, uh, of a more sophisticated era in comic books, we are facing an emergence of a more sophisticated era of art in comic books. That's, that's the in, a, a exact quote. And he says, in order for this to succeed, there has to be a new reordering of our intellectual properties. And people are clapping. And then clearly Stan Lee is nearby and he says, I'm talking directly to you, Stan. And Stan, of course, says, you always are. You always are, Will. He's, he, he immediately kind of has his back and forth. But Will Eisner, let me, let me tell you, Will Eisner created the spirit. The spirit uh, is really instrumental in so many people uh, from Alex Toth to, to the maybe the most important comic creator of the last 40 years, Frank Miller. It was a giant uh, impact. Frank would talk about it often, how much it impacted his Daredevil work. To, to me, his most successful, most acclaimed work, the work that he did on Daredevil. Uh, is very much informed by the Will Eisner work on Spirit. Again, a, a street-level crime fighter, Daredevil street-level crime fighter. Yes, he has the, 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 the radar sense, but no strength, no speed, no extra enhancements. And uh, Frank and Will have had a conversation. It's been recorded. There was a book that went, on, uh, that went along with it. Will Eisner was a giant. The, the Spirit was his creation. It wasn't a Marvel comic. It wasn't a DC comic. And it was legendary. There's a reason, again, that the, the awards are called the Eisners. Will Eisner says, we are facing an emergence 
of a more sophisticated era of art in comic books, and there has to be a new reordering of the intellectual properties. I'm talking to you, Stan. Everybody laughs. And that's basically the end. That's that's how this rendition ends. And I just look at it, and I look at that snapshot of, of the the summer of 1975, the gathering of really some of the most important people in comics, whether they were there or they gave themselves over to these interviews like, this, like, like Jerry Siegel and his wife. But they are there to give you a snapshot. It was a struggle. I read people today saying they're struggling in comics. I understand that. Uh, somebody told me, somebody I deeply respect told me a few years back that the way that the retail game has changed is because the international markets that have opened up with the digital platforms that we can sell everywhere all at once. If you ordered too many of a book back in the 90s, you were stuck with them. I remember going to my retailer and seeing how many Eternal Warriors, and and yeah, I'm going to pick on some Valiant comics here. There was way too many of them. There were more Valiant comics than any comics in his store. The Valiant fever had broken, and he was stuck with hundreds, if not thousands of dollars of Valiant comics that he could not possibly move. Today, that same retailer could, even at a discount, or make them an incentive for other sales, put them on his platform, go to all the different places that he can, he can sell on Facebook, on Instagram, on whatnot, on eBay. Um, this was re- just a very, uh, it's a very different time. And I know it's a very different time in comic books. I tell people all the time, you guys are able to draw what you, what you, your samples and put them up and upload them immediately to a global audience and reach multiple editors and multiple influencers at once. We had to drive, as I did, seven hours to San Francisco to show my portfolio. And the last guy that looked at it, thank God, Mark Grunwald at Marvel Comics hired me because no one else was even looking. No thanks, pass. I've told this story multiple times. No thanks, pass. No thanks, we're not looking. They didn't even look at my art. They said, we're not accepting submissions. Whoa, just a complete blow. Finally, Marvel, boom, I'm in. Nowadays, you have a many more different platforms to show your work, to reach people to tag an editor. It, it, look, I, 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 it's not what I do, but I know many of you do. I've been tagged. <laughs> I've been tagged and, and asked to consider, and I've hired some of you. The money in comics is different. Um, there is more equity. There are excellent deals available out there. And if you just want to draw some of your lifelong heroes, maybe at DC or Marvel, you can do that and, and, and you can do a, a fairly good living doing it and it can be the basis for so much more to come. But that exists because these people struggled. The Jack Kirby's, the, the, the Jerry Siegel's, the Joe Schuster's, even the Jim Stranko. There's a point where Jim Stranko, the question that he's asked is, a guy says, hey, why won't you let us take pictures of your, of your paintings? And Jim Stranko says, you want to know why I won't let you take pictures of my paintings? He says, uh, I don't want these paintings that I've done, some for different clients. Some for people who've already bought them, my, 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 my different paintings. Uh, I don't want you photographing them. And then I'm going to see them on the cover of a fanzine or as a special section of, 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 of a fanzine, another publication that I didn't approve of. And he gets very defensive and he's very, you know, take no prisoners. He's just like, look, this is why, because they're like, we're, we're frustrated. You won't let us take photos. And he's like, uh, and then this is un- interesting because before I came and did this, I was looking at pictures of a recent convention this last weekend. And it showed a guy getting yelled at by a handler. He's clearly standing about 10, 10, 10 feet away from the celebrity uh, subject that he, he has chosen not to pay to get a photo. And, and underneath it, it says when the 
actor's rep yells at you for taking a photo, uh, you know, and tells you it's off limits and that those are purchased items. And I just laughed, you know, because it's no different. Jim Stranko's telling you, don't take pictures of my paintings back in 1975 because he doesn't want you to then get a real high res image and print it in one of your magazines and sell it and, 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 uh, and exploit his work that is intended for another. That the, the, those, are, the, those are paintings that he did for clients. He says for, for other people who, who purchased them and then they're going off with you on your, on your, on your camera. And, and then today's actors who, who ask no, no pictures. And trust me, man, I was there. I stood there. I, I had books signed by Stan Lee as a professional just a few years back as people would who, who, weren't, who did not pay for the photo or could not get the photo opportunity were trying to lift their cameras and take pictures. And, and those photos, those cameras and phones were swatted out of hands by the security detail. I mean, so it's just crazy. It, it's literally, um, some things never change. So, so uh, the, the art form and, and what, what was going on in the art form in 1975, again, give you a, a, a capsule of that year, giant size X-Men number one, that, 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 that's, that's kind of, you know, a really good basis. That is the summer. That is the, that book came, that was a summer book by Marvel. And here, here we are gathering at this function. And then again, in October, just in the fall that immediately followed this convention, Jerry Siegel put that curse out that moved Neil Adams to swear that he would change things for them and get them compensated. And we're all going to say that it's never enough. And it feels like it never is. But um, let me tell you something. For those guys at that time, basically hearing the hardship and the trauma and the words they were very carefully using, something was better than nothing. And, uh, and look, right now, obviously the writers and the actors are on strike again against the big um, corporations. And, and it, is, it is a really, uh, to, to borrow a, a line, a tale as old as time, really, the artist versus the big bosses. And so much of that was going on here in, the, in, in 1975. But I'm going to choose to dwell on the, 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 the Ray, Bat, Ray Bradbury saying that we are here because of the romance involved. The romance. Uh, that these creators had with comics, the romance that, that, that they shared, and then the romance that they created for us and that they've romanced us. And that really is why I get up in the morning, why I do what I do. And I know so many of you who are making comics, it's why you do what you, what you do. Again, maybe t- sometime in the future, I can share the actual snippets and recordings and sound bites of all that I listened to on this very excellent CD. Thank you again, Dan Frega for pointing me in the right direction. And, and I am so grateful I got the last copy. This was a great way to kind of spend an afternoon and, and, and really revisit a, a time period and, and hear the voices of some of my favorite and most important creators. What was their priority? What were they sharing? What were they talking about? And, and how the fans were interacting uh, with them back at this time, especially right on the heels of this tremendous 2023 San Diego Comic-Con. So uh, hope I did this justice. Hope, hope I, uh, was able to uh, share with you what I received and, and really able to, again, dwell on the romance, the romance that, that, that exists and is the reason that we all do what we do. A couple of quick addendums to the 1975 San Diego Comic-Con recording that we were just, that, that has been the subject of this entire episode. There was also a segment with Chuck Norris and, you know, Chuck Norris, before he became a giant uh, TV star with his, his Texas Ranger, he was a martial art, martial art uh, superstar making a bunch of 
films in the late 70s, early 80s that I would go go see regularly. But at this 1975 San Diego Comic-Con, he appeared because he was just starting to emerge as a martial arts superstar, uh, primarily due to sharing the spotlight in films with Bruce Lee. He wants everybody, his panel, which he's going to do some uh, martial arts instruction and, 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 and uh, an exhibition of martial arts skills. He starts by talking about his relationship with Bruce Lee and uh, his training and, and again, just the, the friendship that he was able to strike up with, with Bruce Lee and talks about the rumors surrounding his death and wants everyone to know very specifically what happened. And, and these are his words. He's offering this up in his panel on this, on this uh, CD recording. Uh, it's great. I mean, because Chuck Norris has such a distinct voice, but he says, look, he, you know, had terrible back pain and back trauma from an, from an incident where, where they, they didn't know if he'd even walk again, but he was back up within, you know, five weeks and back at it. But he had, you know, tremendous back pain the rest of his life. And then while, while filming, filming a, a, uh, a movie, he got terrible migraine headaches and it was the combination of the two medications this is what chuck norris is telling the audience is the combination of the two medications that caused his brain to swell and he had an aneurysm and that is what chuck uh tells the crowd is what caused the death of bruce lee and he says you know there's a lot of rumors but i just want you to understand and you to know you know for a fact this is what happened it was the back pain medicine that, that, that he was taking to relieve his, his uh, trauma and pain from, from, from his back injury and his, his subsequent recovery. And then it was these, the medication that he took for these migraines and the combination of the two medications you know, had this effect that, 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 that he says ultimately resulted in the aneurysm that killed him. That is Chuck Norris. That is, that is not Rob Liefeld. That is not Wikipedia. That is not... I'm just telling you what is on this CD. And again, Chuck Norris, I was going to see all of his films. Just There's a whole litany of, of his films that he was releasing, especially in the late 70s, as, as he became kind of the uh, prototypical you know, martial arts superstar in the wake of, of, of Bruce Lee's passing. So that was something I wanted to mention. Again, this, this uh, CD, just recounting whether it was Ray Bradbury, Stan Lee, the Jack Kirby, Jim Steranko panel, the the really just sad interview with Jerry Siegel and his wife, and uh, and then and then the Will Eisner wrap up. All of it again, a great snapshot in time. Stuff that we should know and that we should uh, you know acknowledge. Also bring context to that that it was shortly thereafter, and I'm sure it seemed like an eternity, but but eternity. But Neil Adams jumping in and making sure that Siegel and Schuster were properly uh, compensated. And then the interesting thing. Going back and looking, uh, for instance, at nineteen summer nineteen seventy five, it was really really fun to uh, grab the month August nineteen seventy five, where, where which is the uh, the final days of this convention, uh, which was held in the El, El Cortez Hotel, when Jack Kirby is giving his panel in July of nineteen seventy five. There are no. Marvel Jack Kirby, fresh Marvel Jack Kirby covers. Some of the stuff that they're doing in terms of reprints is most certainly there. But uh, <clears throat> in, uh, in August 1975, right after this panel, 
and it's 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 just so great because I think Kirby and, and Marvel are are synonymous. But Jack does no less than there there are about twelve Kirby covers, but no less than seven fresh ones. Jack did the cover to Kazar number twelve. He did the cover to Iron Man number eighty. Jack Kirby did the cover to Fantastic Four number one sixty four. Jack Kirby did the cover to Giant Size Conan number five. Jack Kirby did the cover to the the uh the Marvel two in one that was coming out uh that that month that 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 featured the thing and and Iron Man and uh it, it was it, it's just so great seeing seeing Jack's uh, covers all over this. He did the cover to Thor that month. Of course, uh, Raw- Rawhide Kid. It, 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 that that that's a reprint. He's got a he's got a uh, reprint on a Fantastic Four cover. But the Fantastic, I mean the 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 uh, the, the Kazar and the Conan really stand out to me. Again, j- they opened just absolutely opened the floodgates for Jack to come back. It was Marvel two and one number twelve with the Thing and Iron Man. There's Marvel's Greatest Comics, which is a reprint. Uh, it's Marvel's Greatest Comics number 60, which is reprinting a Fantastic Four issue with The Wizard that has a Jack Kirby cover. There's a fresh Jack Kirby cover on Thor number 241. Again, so many Jack Kirby covers that month. I mean, they really wanted you to know Jack is back at Marvel. We're setting the stage and he is on his way back, uh, you know, with all of us. And then you got Iron Fist. His own series has started up. He's on his second issue. Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, the 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 uh, the the giant martial arts magazine from Marvel. That's issue sixteen. You've got the uh, Shang Chi, Shang Chi, the Master of Kung Fu comic book is out. You've got a Treasury edition with the Masters of Kung Fu. Because a couple of years ago, uh, when Shang Chi was coming out, I thought it was a perfect time to talk about the seventies. And the the episode is called "Everyone Was Kung Fu Fighting," taking off of the uh, very famous song with with the same lyric. But just how martial arts has exploded, and then again the, the the Chuck Norris being present and giving an exhibition and 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 commenting and and talking about Bruce Lee at that show. It's just like it, again, it encapsulizes everything that is going on. Looking at the August uh, uh, releases in 1975, seeing that Jack King Kirby was coming back, doing all sorts of fresh new covers on such varied characters. Uh, that that you wouldn't know, normally identify him as doing covers on like Conan, uh, and and of course Kazar, and uh, even though even though Jack introduced Kazar, it was like seeing a cover by Kazar, you know, in 1975, just bringing it all the way back. Marvel really went out of their way again. Uh, his covers would only become more prominent and more dominant. Uncanny X Men uh, 94 and 95 had shipped. Giant Size X Men had come out in 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 April. And we were already underway with the brand new X-Men and those 94, 95 were, were huge issues because it, it was the, uh, the death of an X-Men, an X-Men that they just literally just introduced. I'm not going to tell you which one. If you, if you were there, if you're familiar, you know, but it was the, it was like, don't take any of, of this for granted. A character that we just introduced to you has now been killed in this conflict with, with, uh, with the, the villain of those two issues. So great time in comics. A time that was changing, and again, really, just underscoring Will Eisner saying that it was, you know, it was really time to to acknowledge that we are we are in a a a, a change, an emergence of a more sophisticated era of art in comics. 
and there had to be a reordering of our intellectual properties. As I said, six years from this, I would be at at San Diego Comic-Con with my dad taking the train ride, meeting so many of my favorites. But times were different then. The royalties hadn't been instituted. They would be instituted in 1981. They'd make a giant announcement about it. That changed everything for guys like me. Also, this is right in the aftermath. Again, Dave Cockrum only goes and does the new X-Men because over at DC Comics, they won't give him his artwork back. They won't give him the one spread that he wants. So think of all of that when you're, when you're, you're, you're thinking over this information that you received. This is a much more, uh, I mean, I, I, I mean, we, we, the 1975 comic book industry was climbing out of the dark ages, not creative, you know, creatively. Creatively, it was, I mean, I think the dawn of the Marvel age is, is, is one of the brightest spots in the history of the entire medium. And then you've got, you know, Neil Adams repeatedly saying that Siegel and Schuster are the godfathers of an entire genre. And he's not wrong. He's absolutely not wrong. And then you've got Jack Kirby, who's the greatest to ever do it. And I love how, I love how Jim Strank, I want you to know, not just now, not just now, it's for all time. You're never going to do better than this guy. And no one has ever done better than this guy. Again, the, 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 costuming the designs the power of the figures the 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 cropping of the panels the staging the camera work the storytelling the impact there's just never been another jack kirby we got to talk more about jack kirby and we are going to continue to do that as this podcast goes on so that is a wrap for our 301st episode i had no idea we'd even hit 300 until my producer reed informed me reed makes sure that i sound as crisp and clean uh, uh, for, for all of you uh, each and every episode. I, I so appreciate all of his contributions. I don't mention his name nearly enough because I'm always just so trying to trying to complete the mission and get the episode locked and loaded so that I can pass it to him. Thank you for listening. Thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you for 301 episodes uh, and, 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 and you're, you're coming along for the ride. And thank you for all the downloads. The audience continues to grow. Our 300th episode, I was able to share this weekend. It was the most downloaded, most listened to episode yet. I'd like to think that that dinner with all those giant uh, titans probably had s- some help. Uh, you know, y- y- you talk about a dinner that you had with Frank Miller and Art Adams and Jeff Loeb and Robert Kirkman and Dave Mandel and, and Lieber Mayho and uh, and Mister Mister Gist uh, and and uh, and, uh, and and Dave Finch. I mean, wh- wow, what 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 a dinner! But thank you for powering and continuing to power this this podcast. We connect the best on social media. After each and every one of these episodes, I am always on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter. I am at Robert Liefeld over there. Now it's called X. I don't care. I think I still have a blue check. It comes and goes. I don't know. It tells you that it's really me. X, Twitter, tweets, posts, whatever. That's where I'm at. I was at a data farm recently. I can't say which one. I can't tell you all the data, but let me tell you something. As, as they express, these people are paid by huge firms to, to, to source this data to tell you, you know, what is the most effective platforms. And they said, contrary to anything you've heard, Twitter is number one in all these different categories for where the conversations and the connectivity is the strongest. And I feel that way. I really do. And so thank you for following me on Twitter. If you don't already, I am at Robert Liefeld. I didn't get Rob Liefeld. that got squatted by, but R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D is where I reside. The blue check tells you that I am authentic. It is truly me. I love your mentions, your replies, your DMs. I love talking to you. I love all the back and forth. Please 
join me over on Twitter where we can continue all these different conversations and sharing our mutual passion and love. Over on Instagram, I am Rob Liefeld. I got that. I got the that the 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 name that I am most known by, Rob Liefeld. I've got another blue check over there that tells you it is really me. That the the amount of imposters is crazy. That's why I I beat this check thing. Is it's it's uh it's it's an authen authentic authentication. It is a uh you know it it it's uh it, it says this is the legit dude, not a phony account. I post my pictures of food, travel, work, fun, family, friends. All on Instagram. Love for you to, to, to follow me over there. I love reading your uh, comments, your input, your DMs, your replies. All of it is so fun. Again, it's another way to connect uh, and, and look through pictures. It, it's probably my preferred, my favorite of all the platforms. So so somewhere between Twitter at Robert Liefeld and Instagram at Rob Liefeld, you're getting the, the, the real deal. So, so feel free to follow me both over on those platforms. Facebook, we have a group. It's a group. It's called Rob Liefeld Marvel Extreme and Beyond. So many of the conversations that we start here continue there in in a, in a longer form, uh, more discussion, more back and forth. Uh, people share their 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 art. We have art contests, drawings, uh, just just different comics that we're collecting that we're sharing stuff that 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 concerns the the thirty eight years that I've had in the comic book business. I am excited to see you all over there. Uh, please join us, either myself or an administrator named Terry Sala, S-A-L-A. He and I are the only administrators. We're the people who will click you through. We will, we are the people who will, um, who will, uh, get you, you know, all the way to the other side and, 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 and so that you can participate in the Rob Liefeld Marvel Extreme and Beyond Facebook group. Hope to see you over there. The question I get asked most, and this is really, I, 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 I need to slow down and let you know. The number one reason that I am sharing the the whatnot uh, information and activity with you is every every day I'm asked, when are you coming to this show? When are you coming to this show? For instance, there was a show in Connecticut uh, recently. There was a show in, in Raleigh, North Carolina recently. I wasn't at either. I probably won't ever be at either. At this point in my, in, in my career, I've just decided to stay home and do as much work as I possibly can. And the reason that the whatnot is so valuable, and we have really earned our rating on there, myself and my crew, Mr. Dave Hong, Key Collectibles, we try and get this stuff to you in a very reasonable fashion, two to three days max for the items that you grab off of our different whatnot shows. And that is whether you're in Alaska, Wisconsin, Idaho, uh, Montana, Wyoming, New Mexico, Arizona, Northern California, Hawaii. Uh, we, we, we have uh, sent stuff to Hong Kong, to Japan, Canada. We are uh, a full service, uh, you know, account on Whatnot. And we love seeing you there. We do shows. I am Rob Liefeld over on Whatnot. Get that app downloaded as the number one comic book and collectible uh, uh, streaming app. I am on generally once or twice a week, kind of also limiting those now to, to possibly just one one time a week. But when we do them, it's it's uh, Wednesdays or, or or the weekends, Fridays or Saturdays. By following me, you'll get notifications of when I'm going to go on. I have so many different exclusive material. I have exclusive Evangeline books, Prophet books, uh, Blood Wolf, some of my great extreme library titles that I've re, um, reformatted, given new new covers. I mean, cardstock, really nice stuff that we bring exclusively to the show. Uh, in partnership with Whatnot, I have done six Deadpool Batter Blood number one covers exclusive that you can find only by interacting with me on whatnot. I did some amazing Spider-Man uh, exclusives with whatnot. I've done a Deadpool New Mutants 98 facsimile exclusive on whatnot. I have new new 
Marvel exclusives coming with whatnot in the in the weeks to come. Uh, we did a Battlestone, a Brigade uh, exclusive on whatnot. So many different exclusives and variants and stuff that you're only going to get from me there. I, I draw on toys. I do remarks. There's original art. There's Funkos. I do uh, uh, the, the, these things called a, a, a chisel signature. I do a, a, uh, a drop shadow chisel. The, 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 the blood splatter chisel is, is the thing that everybody wants right now. Stuff that you're not going to get anywhere else but from seeing and interfacing with me on Whatnot. Please join me on Whatnot. When I go live, I am talking right at you, talking directly into the screen. One of the uh, gentlemen who, who is, who is uh, on, on the show quite often says, Rob, you get it. You, talk, you just talk to us. You don't treat us like a carnival barker. I'm just there sometimes just to have fun. It, it, it's, it's so, so much of what I love about the live stream is talking to you guys directly. And then we share stuff and, and, and some stuff you may want, some stuff you, you may not, but at least give it a, give it a shot, uh, give it a shot, give it a chance, check it out. Maybe there's something that you can find directly from me over on whatnot. Download the app, follow me, Rob Liefeld, and you'll be notified as to my latest shows. Currently in stores, I have Deadpool Batterblood 1 and 2, issue 3 is off to press it is coming to a comic store near you in august i cannot wait i think issues three and four are the best comics i have ever produced i really took the spirit of jack kirby his 70s work his his captain america his black panthers his machine mans i took the energy of that i truly tried to turn it back on the page and re-inject so much of what i love about jack kirby into those books i i, I was scratching the surface with issues one and two but i really think Boy, issues three and four, I find my groove. I am so excited to share those with you. Thank you for picking up Deadpool Batterblood one and two so far and all the crazy variants and all the different um, uh, uh, exclusives that we have. Again, w- on whatnot, we have six dedicated Deadpool Batterblood variants, and I'm, I'm excited to share those with you. So Deadpool Batterblood is in stores now, continuing to ship each and every month until we wrap it up in October with issue five. And then hopefully we'll get that in a trade paperback and a hardcover, all different more all different formats that you can enjoy. Thank you so much for the support you've given, not just this show, but my entire career. I am only here because you have given me your favor. You have um, liked my work, collected my work, um, followed my work my entire youth when I broke in as a teenager up till now, as I am a creaky fifty uh, something old man. But, uh, but thank you. Thank you for the energy you guys bring to this podcast. You know what? I, I, I always read, <clears throat> I always read your, uh, comments at the end of each and every show. It's just, they're coming a little later today. The, the, those, those same comments are, are just coming a, a little later today than normal. So, so let me, let me get to it. Let me read, uh, let, let me read to you the, the, the reviews that you are so generous and that you, and that you leave. And I'm going to tell you today's is really, it's quick. I love it. It's in and it's out. Uh, it, it is, it is, uh, from a gentleman who has, um, uh, identified himself as Josh and he wrote out Rob's observations, uh, like, like, like shield, like an, like an, uh, like, like, like R dot O dot B dot. I, I don't, I'm not sure what Rob's observations is meant to mean here. Um, but, uh, it's like the organization of Rob's observations. He gives us five stars and I thank you, Josh. Thank you so very much. He says, right on Bobby. (laughs) I'll take it for this. I'll take it. You give us five stars right on. Bobby is good with me. He says, stellar entertainment, regular visitors, regular visitors are told interesting, outrageous nonfiction stories. I, I think that really does sum up our time together here on Rob's observations. It really does. 
Right on, Bobby. Stellular. <laughs> Stellular. Stellar entertainment. Regular visitors are told interesting, outrageous nonfiction stories. Thank you, Josh. Thanks for going out of, the, out of your way to, uh, to, to type this. Look, the audience um, that we pull in is so much on Apple and Spotify. Those two platforms alone make up the majority. If you could see the graph, it's ridiculous. Uh, and Apple, by far and away, because their podcast platform is, is the most popular in the entire world. When you pull out your, you know, typewriter on your phone or on your laptop and, and you and you 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 type and you leave a response it, it is uh it's tremendous it means the world does it helps us on the platform in ways that you can't even comprehend i appreciate uh comprehend i i can't even appreciate and express my appreciation to you enough thank you thank you for the enthusiasm thank you for sharing your love of this show thank you for leaving your reviews i read them it just it was a little later today so thank you thank you for that thank you for that for that big josh i appreciate it at the end of every episode, I'm just reaching out and I'm hoping this finds you well and that your mental health, your physical health, your emotional health, uh, and your, you, you, so, so, so your physical, your mental, uh, you, your emotional and your spiritual health. Those are our four checklists we go through to make sure that we're doing good. Okay. Uh, I just was really appreciative this last weekend of the family, uh, that I have, the friends that I have. Take time to, to really reevaluate the positives in your life, the people who love you, the people who reach out for you, the people who, who count on you, uh, count on you for your friendship and, 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 and the warmth and the enthusiasm that you may bring to the table because you're important. And, and, and there are people out there who want to interact with you, want to spend time with you. And sometimes you just want to get away. You want to get away. You want to curl up with a comic book, with a graphic novel, with a great novel. Good God, my wife, she read one book she was so dying to read. She read it like from Saturday to Sunday this last weekend, just burned through the whole thing. We could not bother her. She was like, I'm, I'm reading. And then she's like, hey, my screen time is down. I'm like, of course your screen time is down. You've been reading a book for two days straight. That's all you've been interacting with. And you know what? It, it, it's all she wanted to talk about. It was great. She, she was telling me all about it over, over multiple different dinners, that, those two nights, all the stuff that she was taking in. Look, reading, um, watching TV. We watched a new Taylor Sheridan show. We love Lioness. I'll be tweeting about that I, it, there's there's three episodes up right now that was our shared fun entertainment zoe zaldana is fantastic uh just just i love taylor sheridan i love all the stuff that he does but that's an example we 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 parked it on the recliners boom started lioness got a new show we dig it it took us away it gave us something to talk about performances story subject matter that's what i'm talking about take time for yourself slow down have a great meal have a great dinner you know uh, that on top of the hamburgers and the pizza and the chicken wings and the pasta and all the other good stuff that I'm going to mention that there is a Reese's Big Cup with your name on it. They are putting all sorts of stuff. I'm, I'm expecting turkey and salami to be in the latest releases. I know that's coming. There is a uh, a pop-up shop that I hope I can make it to in New York. I hope I hope it, it it's still there when I go for New York Comic Con. I am going to put all sorts of manner of stuff in there. I am going to make so many of my own giant big cups. You have no idea. Maybe I will broadcast an <laughs> An episode from their live or at least a segment uh stay tuned um if i could possibly give you a link through a podcast i would but i have watched this thing like four times it's fantastic it's magnificent anyway take some time for yourself have fun eat, eat fun foods the rock and hugh jackman they're not the only people who should be having cheat days and showing us the 12 pancakes uh, with with chocolate uh, chips and 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 and, uh, and and whipped cream that they're putting on those things okay um we all need a cheat day we need a day to just you know, reset. So reset, please take care of yourself. I am rooting for you. Fist bump, boom, right through this microphone. Uh, I wish you all the very best. And you know that I expect for you to come back and visit me.
you got to come back. You got to come back for our next episode because we are most certainly, absolutely, and inevitably going to talk again real soon. 